0: to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's word.
1: Take your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're going to have our core teaching this morning. Um, And before we get there, I just want to draw your attention to a verse of scripture that I believe is very, very profound, uh, has a profound impact on how we think about the nature of kingdom leadership. I do love to talk about leadership from a kingdom vantage point. I love learning. I'm obviously the president of a university. I'm finishing my doctorate. Matter of fact, I got homework to do this afternoon. uh, Finishing my doctorate up at Gonzaga. And so I lead a university and I'm dying inside one as well right now. So I told the students I'm I'm buried in my own homework. Um, But I, I I love education, but the right kind. What I mean by the right kind of education is the kind of education in which your heart stays twice the size of your brain. If you let your brain get twice the size of your heart, you're gonna be dead in the water. I love learning Joseph and Daniel is referenced by your pastor. Two of the greatest uh, uh, young people in the Bible, liberal arts graduates you could say. Um, nothing negative is spoken about either life. Spent their whole life in captivity, displacement, the bulk of their whole existence from teenage years to their elderly years. Um, And they were raised up in the two most wicked nations in the Bible, Egypt and Babylon, save maybe Rome. And these leaders could interpret dreams and they could govern the economies of their nation. And that is the kind of leader, I believe, that's being raised up in America. Um, People that can prophetically interpret dreams and be so close in intimacy with God and yet they have been positioned to help shape and influence nations. So I believe uh, kingdom leadership, um, is there's a powerful open door for us in this world. Um, it may not look political in the natural construct, and that's more than okay. But as far as influence in the marketplace, I believe the Lord is placing and, and positioning people in ways we've never, ever dreamed. This verse of scripture is profound. Jeremiah twelve five says, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in a safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Jeremiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah that did not learn the lessons well of their northern brethren and sisters of Israel, who had been defeated in 722-ish by the Assyrians, and now the southern kingdom is about in about six, uh, um, uh, t- um, six, 6 16, 620 in there they start the whole siege process of deporting the leaders, the prime young people of Judah to Babylon, of, of whom Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of the first um, uh, taking or kidnapping of those young people. It's about to happen, and Jeremiah is telling them, "Man, if you think the if you think the current conditions are difficult." you will not understand the intensity or be able to cope with the intensity of what's in store. So, a matter of fact, the challenge that's in front of us will make it look like you were walking in open, safe places with men as opposed to running with horses and having to break through the thicket of the Jordan, which was a spring thicket that would grow next to the river that was 20 feet high, 20 feet thick, filled with sharp, razor-edged thorns that would block the, the, the river. And he's saying that's the thicket of the Jordan. How are you gonna make it through that if you're falling down now with no obstacles? So, the nature of kingdom leadership can be seen in this verse. The first thing I want you to notice about kingdom leadership is that the future, the future will always be more demanding than the present. Most people don't realize this, they think you pay the price early for a life of ease later. That's not how the kingdom works. Your reward for living a faithful life is to be given a weightier, more demanding assignment. When you graduated from third grade, they rewarded you with a harder test in fourth grade. Your graduation present from fifth grade was a harder test in sixth. And so the reward for faithful living is not a lessening of the demand or a life of ease. It is really the weight of a greater assignment It's going to feel more adversarial, more conflict. That's the nature of stewardship. As you are faithful, more is given to you. And more is always more. So leadership, kingdom leadership, at its core, is always about preparing our life for the future, for the greater task. That's why we learn. That's why we pray. That's why we never kick it into neutral. I love the story in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb, is closing escrow on the promised land property. He and Joshua are older men now. And if you read the text in Joshua 14, Caleb goes to Joshua and says, hey, 45 years ago when Moses promised us this land, he goes, I've been carrying that in my heart. And here we are about to close escrow. He says, I'm 85 now. And the Bible says, Caleb says, I'm as strong today as I was then for war, for going in, for coming out. No matter what life throws at me, I am so alive and so strong. 85 is the new 40. When you live with the word of God richly dwelling in your heart and you're hanging on to a vision, to a promise that's not yet fulfilled and I'm not talking about for four or five days or four or five months, 45 years. Caleb stepped into that land of promise and he told Joshua, Joshua, hey, I want my land. I've been living with this. Everybody around me was negative. All my peers fell away. But it did not cause me to diminish to the lowest common denominator of my surroundings. I have lived hot and on fire in my heart, though no one else has. And I want what God has promised my life. And he said, Joshua, I want the hill country Now when you're 85, you're not looking for the hill country, you're looking for the chill country, the flatlands. He said, I want the hills with the Anakim in there. The Anakim were these eight-foot giants. As a matter of fact, the land that Caleb wanted was formerly called Ebron or Hebron or Hebron in the Bible. Ebron was the land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried, their wives were buried there. But years, generations ago, a giant named Kirioth-arba one of the anakim who was the head of the giants he was the nine-footer leading the eight-footers Kiriath arba conquered Hebron the conquer or the victory was so complete they changed the name of the town it was no longer called Hebron it was called Kirioth-arba for several hundred years Caleb is 85 he says Joshua That's the land I've always wanted. Give me the hills and give me the giants. Give me the hills and give me the giants. Perhaps God will allow me to drive them out. He didn't know. He had no guarantees. But he had the word of God richly dwelling. It was alive in him. It kept him strong. And the Bible says that Caleb took the hill country known as Kiriath Arba, formerly known as Hebron. He said, I want the city that is known for its conquered identity. That's what the enemy does. Generational sin, he conquers the identity of that family. And they are no longer known for what God created them to be. They're known by the enemy's brand. This is our brand, we're we're conquered. This is what we are known for. He says, no, I'm gonna restore I'm gonna reconquer the conquered territory. And the Bible says in Joshua chapter, or Judges chapter one, that that Ephraim visited Hebron, formerly known as Kiriath Arba. So, this one guy's 85 years old, knowing that the future is more demanding than the present, who understood he had to prepare to run with horses and to break the thicket of the Jordan, Caleb. He single-handedly changes the reputation of a nation. Could Chicago have its reputation changed? Yes! Does it have to be known for its conquered identity as the murder capital of America? No! Maybe God is going to put a Caleb-type spirit inside the Chicago tabernacle people that believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could just simply exist and build a nice neighborhood little community here, but people that said, I want the hills, I want the giants, because kingdom leadership, the future will always be more demanding than the present. Kingdom leaders understand this. The second thing about kingdom leadership is that deception, you need to understand that deception never comes in the form of a contrast. It always comes in the form of a similarity. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that that take the two trees that was in the Garden of Eden. They were not contrasting trees. They were similar trees. One was the tree of substance. One was the tree of, of shadow. One gave life, one gave death. I said, Lord, why didn't you just... Make them in different spots and call them different things. Why didn't you just say, Adam and Eve, here's this tree. This is called the God-Jesus tree. God-Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit tree. Eat this, live forever. Now let's take a long journey to a deep, dark galaxy, and I'm going to show you the Satan-demon tree. Why didn't you just do that? Why did you put them side by side and make them look similar? Why did you do that, Lord? Why would the substance and the shadow be side by side? Why would they both bear fruit? Why would the shadow tree be called the tree of the knowledge of good? Why would you even put a positive spin on that tree? Because the Lord wanted Adam and Eve to walk near and close to the instruction of the Lord. And if you live casual and the Holy Spirit is not you're not walking in friendship with the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God is simply conceptual to you. There's not, it's not an active living sword. It's nothing that you really use moment by moment to discern the shadow from the substance because deception does not come in the form of a contrast. It always comes in the form of a similarity. That's why it's deceptive. Take what we say today all over this nation. People say, hey, love is love. Love is love, really? It's like telling Eve, hey, come on, fruit is fruit. Fruit from that tree, fruit from this tree, it's just fruit. But how many know that when you ate from the fruit from the tree of substance, you lived, but you ate from the shadow tree, that you never even had to move your head to look at it. I bet both of them were side by side, substance and shadow, filled with similarity. And yet the instruction of the Lord was death and life. So understand that as you lead in kingdom leadership, we're not just being creative and making the world curious for the gospel. We are making them thirsty, but we have to bring clarity through the instruction of the word, not just be creative and create curiosity. If it doesn't lead to clarity through teaching, then we've not led people into truth. The last thing about the nature of kingdom leadership is this, is that the tree does not fall far from the apple. Okay. I know what you're thinking. Somebody help him. (laughs) He's tired. He Drove through Kokomo yesterday. Three services. No friends, it, it reads exactly correct because apples don't come from trees. Trees come from apples. The nature of kingdom leadership understands that the tree comes from the apple. Most people are so fixated on their stem that they never see or think about their seeds. You have one stem and a typical apple has six seeds. What Satan wants you to do is become so obsessed over your stem, where you came from, trying to reconcile your stem, what dropped you, the bruises in your life, where you came from, that you waste your whole life thinking about the stem, that you overlook the stewardship of the seeds. Because, friends, no matter how frustrating where you came from is, the fact of the matter, it's not where you came from, it's what comes after you, whether you like it or not, something is coming after you. And I just pray that kingdom leaders understand that the seeds are more important than the stem. The, and it's a, it's a life distraction. And we all come from crazy places. I came from a crazy place growing up. My dad was a Cherokee Indian. Uh, grandma was 100%, dad was a 50% Cherokee, which I guess makes me a quarter. He grew up on a reservation in Oklahoma. When my dad was 10, he, had, he was the oldest of five siblings, had four little brothers and sisters. And my grandfather left the family and he left with another woman. He got caught with another woman in the trunk of a, of a car. And I tell that to millennials. They go, how little was your grandpa? Because they don't understand. They're thinking about a smart car. Like, what? Two people? In, what, what, what's going on here? Was he chopped into little pieces and put into the trunk? No. Back in the day, you could put six or seven dead bodies in the trunk of a car. How many grew up with a big trunk in a big old Buick? You know what I'm talking about. That big old trunk. He was hiding in the trunk with a woman. And Grandma caught him, and Grandma was going to kill him. He ran away, and it's the only story to this day I know of my grandfather. I don't have one single shred of of knowledge of my grandfather other than he was in the trunk of a car with a woman. It's the only story circulated about my family. So when I was a kid, our last name meant nothing. There was nothing to our name. So my dad was unsupervised at age 10. He was a lighter-skinned Indian kid, so the darker-skinned kids used to fight with him. My dad said he got hit in the face almost every day when he was a kid on the reservation just fighting. He says, when you get hit every day in the mouth, it just makes you angry. You just can't, not, you can't stop being angry. And so my dad, he um, um, then, terrible story, but it's true, he, he got molested uh, repeatedly, horribly raped uh, in, in the, 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 the truest sense of the word, I, I would say, from 11, 12, and 13. So now you have my dad who was unsupervised and highly sexualized. And when you have a young adolescent male that's unsupervised and highly sexualized, you got a nuclear bomb on your, you know, that's that's in the making. Unless Christ comes in and Christ's church steps in. And so my dad, I love my dad. I get so much of my life and outlook from my pop. He had to move a lot. um, And so our family was vagabonds. And so my dad... My dad died when he was 62 of stress and he died of stress. The doctor said your father, I said, died of stress? How does a person die of stress? He says, what happens is the back of your brain releases glucocorticoid in times of crisis and it, it showers through your body. Like when you turn the shower on today, the speed that the water went from the nozzle to the tile or the tub, that's how fast it goes through the body from the back of the brain. If you're in a crisis, God created this mechanism that if you get chased by the lion, this glucocorticoid turns on, it suspends body growth, it suspends hunger, it suspends everything, and you can outrun the lion. Your body stops growing, you don't need to sleep, don't need to eat, because your adrenaline kicks in and you outrun the lion. And then when you're safe on the rock and you've outrun the lion, the body miraculously turns it off. Your body regulates, And the need to sleep, eat, and grow is restored. But in that moment, God gave our human capacity this burst of ability in crisis to survive. But the brain can't tell the difference between a real lion and an imaginary lion. So my dad spent his whole life believing he was being chased because he carried secrets. And the secrets of his life became the imaginary lion. And so he lived in a state of stress his whole life. And he he shared this in his testimony before, in his last portion of his life. He had a great, I believe, a powerful Hail Mary homecoming. I don't mean that in a Catholic sense, but like the, a bomb was thrown, and there was a touchdown of grace in my dad's life. And it was just a powerful, powerful experience. But he died of, of stress because it created plaque in his heart. That glucocorticoid, if it pours through unchecked, creates plaque, and he... He he had congestive heart failure, so my dad li- lived his whole life distracted by the stem, and never really fully comprehended the seeds that were inside of him. I just want to say this to you, that even though you come from places that are difficult, so I remember when my boy was born, Tyler. He's twenty seven now. Um, I didn't want him to have my childhood. Because yeah, I had no childhood that I wanted to replicate. So I had a vision when I first got married of what not to be. And I realized that the vision of what not to be can carry you to about age 30, but at some point you run out of adrenaline. At some point you have to have the vision of what to become. It was the men in our church in San Jose, Bethel Church of San Jose, Dennis Smith, Joe Wilson, Charles Crabtree. These men gave me a vision in my life in my early 20s of what to become. Because all I knew is I didn't want to be my dad. I love my dad, but I didn't want to be my dad. But the vision not to be your father is not a vision. It's not a vision. It won't take you the distance. It'll give you some adrenaline for a period of your life, but it will not take you the distance. You have to have a vision of what to become. So the Lord brought that in my life. I didn't want to give my childhood to my child, so now my child is about to have a child. This last year, year and a half ago. And Tyler tells me, unsolicited, Man, Dad, I can't wait to give my child my childhood. Now, when the child that you did not want to have your childhood tells you that he wants his child to have his childhood, not trying to be the Riddler here, you realize that the Holy Spirit has broken the brand and something new has begun. It's about the seeds, it's not about the stem. Now let me just say this because they're almost all gone. This will take one minute. Uh, I think we got 22 of these left. We brought, I think, 300 of these. About a year ago, put that picture up there if you can. I have in my pocket this coin given to me by the commander there. Those are the night stalkers. The most elite uh, Blackhawk pilots in the world. The actual pilots that got Osama bin Laden are in this room. Um, That's the only picture they allowed me to take. I had 90 minutes to train these young men on leadership, young men and women in this room. There were some Delta Force people and some SEAL Team 6 people in there. And I had a chance to speak for 90 minutes. I was only the second civilian to get to go there uh, other than uh, Herschel Walker got to go there, a a former football player, through a series of events in this crazy little book that we put together as a really a leadership evangelism tool. Now, how many of you work... Uh, in how many of you work? You work for the Antichrist. I mean, the Antichrist is your boss. Let me see your hands. How many know what I'm talking? Oh, there's a few hands. I actually did work for the Antichrist when I was in college. I was a waiter at a restaurant. The Antichrist. I know who he is. He owns a restaurant in Santa Cruz, California. I'll tell you his name. He just isn't revealed to the earth, but he he's on the earth. I met him. I work for him and uh, he was the meanest human in the world, and uh, you tell me about your antichrist, I bet my antichrist beats your antichrist. And I know people in our, our congregation work in adverse situations, so long, long story short, I've been writing on leadership my whole life, and I put together a Facebook page called Note to Leaders. We, it's grown to about like 100,000 people, just giving away free leadership around the world. And we took the 500 top posts uh, and compiled them into these discussion starters in this book. This book, it's been crazy. It's just a self-published book um, that's about to become uh, another story with the book that's exciting, but it's gone all over the place. The, the um, um, A guy just gave 500 copies to every police officer in Charlotte. The vice president of Apple, Dan Riccio, who answers to Tim Cook, he's quoting from the book to all of his Apple execs. Pro team sports teams are using it. And I just want to encourage, I think we only got 22 of these left out there today. It's on Amazon, it's got Kindle and all that. But but I love talking about leadership, using it as a way to bridge the lost Uh, to share Christ with with unsaved people. I have a deep uh, philosophy and theology that Jesus called them to be fishers of men. It was really a call to the leadership uh, uh, hunger inside those first disciples. So here's a little taste. We we really got to do this in 20 seconds. Um, The book is filled with 500 of these. Great leaders pay attention. Poor leaders seek attention. And so it's filled with these discussion statements. Next on here. Um, Even if you were born for something, you still have to learn how to do it. How many wish every millennial in the earth would understand this you're special you're blessed you have destiny yes you have giftings you're special but you and you're born to do something but you still got to learn how to do it right that's a whole nother topic the secret to longevity is simple don't self-destruct the devil can't take you out i can't take you out people take themselves out through uh, self-destruction. Here's another one, super fast. If you want to really grow, you first have to learn how to protect the progress. People feel futility, they climb the mountain and slide back down, it's a great discussion starter on protecting progress in the marketplace. It's not what you achieve, it's what you set in motion. Um, Most of the, you know, 99% of the things we do, love is not a livelihood. You're never gonna be compensated or thanked for most of everything you do for the kingdom of God. Let it go, let it go. We're setting stuff in motion. We're not achieving things. Most of the stuff we do, we don't get to see it till we get to heaven. It's designed that way. Um, next one. Can't hide your heart. Whatever fills, spills. Um, you, you, your teams need to understand. That's a whole other discussion. Okay, real quick, real quick. Two types of leaders. Those who love power, those who love people. How many wish their boss would understand that right there? Okay, here's, here's two more, I think. Criticizing someone is how the underachiever compliments himself. Um, and one more, um, I love this one. How you describe someone when they're not around tells me more about you than it does about them. And so these are just, there's 500 of these in this book. People give them to their boss, their teams, and I think it'll be a blessing to you. Now, the Bible says in 2 Samuel, chapter five, when the Philistines heard that David had, was anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. We need churches like this. We need leaders and believers like this. We have too many people that are backpedaling from the stronghold. They don't want to move toward it. They don't want the complexity. They don't want the stress of being engaged in spiritual warfare and in human need. So they back away from the stronghold. The first thing I want you to note note about David's early faith as king is that he had a willingness to move toward the need, not away from it. The more you are successful, the more you prosper as a church, the more the Lord does, there will be the tendency to pick your strongholds and pick the safest place and space to minister. I pray that would never become the reputation of the Chicago tabernacle, that it would be known for its ability to move toward the stronghold. The Philistines had come and spread out in the valley. Now, when the enemy spreads out in a valley, he goes in brackets from side to side. There's that moment when the natural eye looks at the future, but you can't see a way through. It's a moment of crisis. I can't go around it because they filled the valley from side to side. I either have to retreat from it or figure out a way to defeat it. So the enemy will always craft his resistance to your purpose and plan in a way that for a moment looks like there's no possible way forward. He spreads out entirely in the valley. So the Bible said, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, go for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went and there he defeated them. As the waters break out, the Lord broke out uh, against the enemies that were before me. He named it Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. Well, isn't that wonderful? Nice, tidy, little two verses. I wish all my strongholds were defeated in two verses. Quick prayer, simple instruction, total victory. We gotta wrap, mop it up, move on. Two verses, the enemy's defeated. I don't meet many people who are consistently living their Christian life like that. It's very simple. I remember reading that and I go, really? Just two verses? Stronghold, battle, victory, prayer defeat, wrap up the idols, hallelujah. But then this happens. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephim. Wait a minute, you, they just did that. So we have to face the same problem twice in life. The enemy comes back the same way twice. The enemy reappears and positions himself exactly like he had before. So the Bible says that David inquired of the Lord. Now friends, let's just be honest. How often do you pray about something you're, you've already been successful at? The story of this story is that David prayed twice. Usually when we are good at something and we've proven that we are capable, We put it in a new category called, hey, this is my anointing, man. This is my gifting. This is my experience. This is my talent. I'm good at this. And once you think you're good at something, you stop praying over how that is used by the Lord. Because your assumption is, anything I do, as long as it's within my gifting, I'll be successful. So here the enemy presents himself immediately after David had thoroughly defeated the enemy in this very linear strategic strike. They had the military, they had the money, they had the people, and God said go. They went in a straight line, total victory, clean up, mop up, all done. Now the enemy comes a second time. Why would you pray? Why wouldn't you just go do it again? And the Lord this time tells a praying leader a praying church, he says this time, the Lord says, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them, attack them in the, from the, near the front, front, front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly. Some translations say, when you hear the sound of the heavenly hosts in the, so- in the tops of the trees. So David did, As the Lord commanded, he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezar, which was a more thorough victory. So folks, it's a very simple message. These four verses, they just break down this way. Very simple. So the enemy comes repeatedly, often the same way as he did before. Opportunity presents itself in similar fashion as it did before. You prayed and were desperate because you were uncertain the first time, but now you're good at it. You're effective at it. Now you have another open door, so why pray? But David sought the Lord, and this time the Lord said, I don't want you to go the same way. It's crucial that we pray over familiar things, friends, not just strange things. Things that we're good at, things that we're talented at things that a church is effective at. That's why churches pray less over time. Success takes away the prayer life. Success takes away the desperation because success somehow reinforces this idea that now we know what we're good at. Uh, God's favored us. He's gifted us. He's crafted us for this. So why seek the face of the Lord anymore? Because the next time, the Lord may have an entirely different plan in store for his glory, not yours. So the second time, they prayed over a familiar thing. I cannot say this strong enough after a decade and a half of powerful existence that Chicago Tabernacles had as God is on the verge. It just feels like the church is beginning. I feel it as an outsider coming in, like this thing is going to be unbelievable. It is. There's something totally realized about your church, but there's an equal sense of something unrealized that I sense today in my own life about this church. And then I also prayed this earlier, maybe it was the second service, that um, you've lived in the grace and the goodness of the, of the, really the DNA of the Brooklyn Tab. But the Lord is about to do something that is unique to the generation, this generation that knows not even of Brooklyn Tabernacle. These kids walking around these streets, they don't know who Brooklyn Tabernacle is. They know you. They know this place, and I think there's gonna be a voice that emerges out of this house, especially in the realm of leadership, because I need to wrap this up, but I, especially what I'm about to tell you, I believe that this house is going to be known for this trait, this, this kingdom strength, the ability to inquire of the Lord about, about everything, and, and the ability of the Lord to take you because sometimes God requires us to take the counterintuitive path. Now friends, I know it's not easy because once we think we're good at something, it's very hard to pray about it. Are the musicians nearby? You guys can come on out. Are they nearby? They're coming. They're getting close. Just feel free to walk out. It'll, it'll give the people hope. See, didn't you just feel hope right now? Musicians have that. I've been joking in the two services. I tell preachers all the time, I don't care if you preach horrible, just invite the musicians up. The people will just perk up and be happy because they feel hope and we're, we're going to get out of here. So sometimes God tells a church, a leader, I want you to go down the counterintuitive path this time. It's not easy for people that are linear and strategic and effective to walk in a circle. Now, for some people, that's easy. I will tell you up until about two years ago, this passage rocked my theology and my world. And I've been sharing it with leaders in churches on occasion. And I felt led to do it here today. That... I used to put churches in two categories in America. You had the prophetic church, and then you had the strategic church. You had Saddleback and Willow Creek, kind of the strategic churches. Evangelical, smart church. And then you have the prophetic churches. You know, there's different ones around the nation that are operating in the more prophetic vein. You know, Big One Night is Bethel out in Reading. And then you got Saddleback, over there in Willow Creek, historically. And I used to organize the American church like that. That was easy for me to say, okay, so you go into a town, and say, okay, is this more of an evangelical, organized, strategic, linear, go straight church? Or is this more the prophetic, go and circle church that tries to listen for the horsies in the tops of the trees? Or are they more like this? Because the church, you know, is made up of different kinds of personalities, and, and people, people themselves would say, I'm more this. I'm more comfortable in an evangelical strategic linear church or no I'm more comfortable in the prophetic let's get a little crazy church and so we kind of go into a city and we want to figure out I, I preach in both those churches but I even find myself morphing to that culture because I go that's just the way it is I can't explain it but then I came across this passage and I said, Lord, there, that is not two churches or two leaders or two pastors. That's one man. That's one church that's operating in both a linear strategic model and a prophetic circular model. One person is doing both. It's not either or. And I believe the greatest churches in America, the greatest leaders, people of faith in America, the best will be those who are both linear and circular And the key is not determining which one to do. The key is to inquire of the Lord every single time about everything, even the stuff you're good at, even the stuff you've been successful at. It doesn't have to be strange or odd to elicit prayer. Say, Lord, we've planted churches and we've built buildings and we got our money and our smart people in the room, but oh God Almighty, we are going to lay and stay in this prayer room until we hear your voice, God. Do you want us to go straight or do you don't want us to go in a circle? What do you want us to do, Lord, for your glory? Because we are capable of doing either as a church speak to us Lord speak to us Lord we have to inquire of him it's not easy man people are different I look out at churches and I see kind of three kinds of people sometimes I see the I see the the compassion people they love to weep and cry and they they just talk with people it's about mercy and they're caring for people they love small group touchy feelies and they, they 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 hang out after churches ministering to people caring for people And then you got the warfare people, binding loose people and warfare and evangelism and and, and binding strongholds and, and all of that. And they don't understand the care people. These are the warfare folks. You know, they're throwing anointing oil over everything and the other group is just caring and there's Kleenex everywhere and community care for people pastor why do why do you want to reach more people we're not loving the ones we have we just gotta group up and circle up and listen and care and cry the other people say what are you talking about time's wasting people are dying and going to hell we gotta bind we gotta loose, we gotta we gotta bind and we gotta lose something let's go let's go let's go <laughs> what's well, about warfare strongholds heavenlies heavenly places The army of the Lord. And then you got that third group in the church. They're they're the corporate people. They say, Pastor, we absolutely believe in warfare evangelism. We absolutely believe in binding up the brokenhearted. But if we don't budget this and get this into a strategic plan, we're not gonna have the resources to buy the anointing oil or the Kleenexes. (laughs) And for them, the only attack of Satan that they're concerned about is the audit. (laughs) Where are those Dairy Queen receipts? We gotta get them there. We're gonna get audited lose our testimony. How many know what I'm talking about? I bet if we did a little sample in this room, I got about a third warfare folks here, about a third community care, weep, cry for people, listen. About a third of you are waiting for the next business meeting. See the plan. Resources. Operations. So we have a good testimony. God uses all of it together. We synergize. Got to be effective at all of that. But we especially got to be effective at being able to go straight in a mandate, stewardship and altar. I believe is how this house would say it. The linear and the circular. And I want to pray for us as we close this wonderful day. I'm probably a little loopy tired right now, so I'm sorry for being so lax here at the end. Let's all stand together. And we're going to ask God to seal the deal as pastor comes i'd like us if we can to lift up our hands to the lord i know we offer in the uplifting of hands to the lord but i always like to feel like a satellite dish lord i want i need a download i want to capture everything that you're sending my way lord into my heart father i'm asking for this passage of the bible to become the lived experience of Chicago Tabernacle, God, that it would be, Lord, an emblem, a standard, an example, God, of inquiring of the Lord. That they would never, never rely on the historical successes, gifts, talents, favor, blessing, to become prayerless. That even though something looks obvious, we inquire of the Lord and Lord if you tell us to go straight we go in all the preparation and stewardship Lord in all the smarts ingenuity talent gifting we go straight we go it's a two-verse battle but oh God if you say I want you to go in circles I want you to wait I want you to worship over this situation And I want you to wait until you hear the sound of the heavenly host marching in the tops of the trees. Lord God, I pray that you would give Chicago Tabernacle mastery of this text so that they could train a nation and generation of leaders, God, in the last days, God, how to plant churches, lead churches that operate, God, not as two churches but as one. We love you, Jesus, and we give you all the praise and the glory and the might. God bless you, friends. Pastor, would you come? Thank
2: you, Jesus. Come on, let's praise God for the word of the Lord. I want you to take the hand of the person next to you, and we're going to close in prayer. essentially what this is reminding us and encouraging us and teaching us in a fresh way is that we must hear from the Lord God still speaks to his people God still speaks to families he speaks to moms and dads he speaks to single men and women God still speaks to teenagers God is able to speak to our children. God still speaks and we have to take the time to listen. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. But let me tell you, when we ask, he's faithful to answer. And so I wanna pray today to the left and the right, the front and the back. I wanna pray that we would hear the word of the Lord. That God would guide us and direct us because some of us God is going to tell you even in the coming days He's going to say go right at the devil on this And others he's going to say no. I want you to wait. I want you to circle I want you don't move until you hear me move wait until I move in power And when I start to move in power, then I want you to move forth in power Hallelujah, God wants to do that for us but we need to hear
0: from the Lord. So I want you to pray. Come on, let's pray a desperate prayer. God, we want to hear from you, Lord. Lord, we want to hear from you for our lives, oh God, for our purpose, for our calling, for our families, for our future, God. We want to hear from you, Lord, for, because we want to do your will and your way, oh God. Lord, we're desperate. We inquire of the Lord today, oh God. Speak to us, O oh God. Speak to me, Lord God. Speak to our families. Speak to our neighbors. Speak to our brother, sister, to the left and to the right. Oh, speak that your servants are listening, O oh God. We're hungry. We're hungry, O oh God. We want to be led by you, God. We want to see a fresh demonstration of your power, O oh God. Your power is released when we're led by you, God. So speak, O oh God, and lead us, O oh God.
2: Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're as close as the mention of your name. And that, Lord, your ear is tuned in to the cries of your people. So Father, we cry out for guidance and direction today. Show us the way that we should go. I pray, Father, that as we go from this place, I pray that our communion with you would not be broken. We wanna stay dialed in, oh God. Some of us are gonna have to do the laundry tonight, Lord, but we wanna be dialed in when we do the laundry while we're cooking, God. While we're calling people, Lord. If we have to go shopping, oh Lord, whatever it is, Lord, lead us today. And God, and glorify your name through every decision, oh God, of our lives. We thank you and we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Could we give God a hand of praise? Hallelujah.